Welcome to Everything Belongs, a podcast exploring the subtleties of living, creating, leading, and thriving while in the deep end of life. I'm your host, Madison Morgan, and here with me and my weekly guests, you can expect curious and brave conversations all centering around what it means to live into the process of awakening to our worth, wholeness, and power. We will talk about personal, collective, and spiritual freedom, riff on sovereign leadership, living in levity, and bridge the mystical with the down-to-earth and practical. There is not much we shy away from here because at this table, everything belongs. What is up, family? I am here from a gorgeous, expansive, (laughs) soul-nourishing social media break, and I had no idea just how supportive and nourishing it would be. I like wake up every day and I'm like, wow, I feel so good and so spacious, and it has been such a delight and such a surprise how much inner space I have taking this much time off social media. Since I started my business six years ago, I've not taken this much time away from social media. And I've still been working with clients and Awaken Her Soul and my Rising Sovereign clients, but um, being away from social media and just the constant posting and notifications, it feels really lovely. And I have a feeling when I come back, if I, if I decide to come back, when I come back, that I will be coming back uh, maybe differently. You know, I've always had hopes of showing up on social media with a little bit more intention and a little bit more space. And for some reason, probably social media addiction like the rest of us just haven't been able to be quite so intentional with the way that I'm operating my business online. So I'm excited for that shift and don't even want to really think about it. So I'm going to stop talking about it, but instead share with you a poem I read this morning by Tokopa Turner in her book, Belonging. And, you know, as I was reflecting and I shared this with Awaken Her Soul and my clients inside of Rising Sovereign as well, but, you know, with that space, you know, fears have arisen looking back at 2020 and asking, did I do everything I wanted to do? Did I process everything I wanted to process? And my tendency is to say, was it enough? Did I do enough? Was I enough? Did I serve enough? Did I make enough? Is there enough? And that being my tendency, you know, I felt my feelings about it and I spoke with my partner about it. And I just got this message that, you know, keep, keep resting, keep creating more space, go deeper within. And so, um, I opened my book belonging this morning and honestly just flipped it open. Cause I was just looking for a simple passage to read. I'm not really in the space of wanting to digest tons and tons of other people's work right now. Um, but I love this book. So I flipped it open and flipped it open to this page to her, Poem, The Guardianship, and I'm going to read it to you before introducing our guest, Nisha Moodley. The Guardianship. Do not be ready before your time. There's no knowing what symmetry is marshalling itself below this confusion. First, the long attentiveness of listening must be paid. Don't brave your way out of this husk while it serves to protect your impressionability. Let yourself be kept for a while longer in these origins where you are mine alone and I am only yours. Let something sweet be made of our secret. Put not your offering into the world too soon. Let it ripen into the guardianship of your trepidation. Let this fallow time be stretched, for it is in this unreadiness that beauty takes form. 
live a season longer in this holy refuge, because soon what nectar is born of our union will be for all the world to drink, or not, and you will need to remember what grace was allowed only by your staying long hidden. So, goodness, if you have that book, Belonging by Tokopa Turner, it's on page 170. And yeah, that just speaks so deeply to me in this fallow period that 2020 has felt like. And then deepening into winter where I live in the Northern Hemisphere, it has really felt like this desire for me for deeper spaciousness and the fears of, you know, am I being a leader by taking more time? And what does a a deeper relationship to myself and my own self-leadership look like and what how can I deepen my coaching practices and the way that I serve by allowing that space to be sweeter and greater so that's how I'm doing that's what I'm sitting with and I am really delighted to share with you that poem ah good it was so good so I want to dive into this conversation with Nisha Moodley because Nisha is an amazing integrative leadership coach and I felt such a connection with her style of leadership, her style of coaching and her work is so devotional. You know, she has a podcast called Devotion and she's a biracial woman with a background in health and executive coaching intergenerational and energy healing, community building, and has a unique relationship to the ecology of leadership and the ability to catalyze deep growth for her clients. She's been a coach for over a decade and certainly someone I've looked to on my own journey as a coach, looking to people farther along than me. She's been leading mastermind groups, online courses, and nearly 50 retreats and supports women to liberate their leadership and weave their gifts in service of a more beautiful world. Goodness, this conversation is is the kind of conversation about leadership that I think a lot of people aren't having and a conversation about what it really means to lead your life, to lead yourself, to lead your family, to lead a business through truly the ups and downs of life and Nisha boils it down to surrender. But in this episode, we also talk about Nisha's experience with grief, redemption, the death of her father, how she led a business and mothered through that experience, and really just talking about the importance of community care and what us sensitive leaders need as far as community to really live into our gifts and our fullness. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you love it, leave a five-star review. Um, It would be so good to hear from you in that way. And I look forward to hearing what you think about it. So let's dive in. Lanisha, I hit record at exactly 11.11 my time, which has to be a good omen for our conversation. (laughs) really excited to be here with you. And I've already shared with you that I have followed your work for years and years and years and have resonated so deeply with the heart that you have behind your work. It's very clear to me that you are a really ambitious person and that soul hasn't, from my perspective, hasn't been something you've sacrificed in your Mm -hmm. ambition. And so I just wanted to name that before we dive in to a a full different conversation about death and grief and Mm -hmm. rebirth that I really appreciate the way that you do business and the way that you lead. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and grateful to be in your orbit and love everything that you're putting out as well. 
really Thank you so see. much. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I really wanted to speak with you today was on grief and we're recording this in November of 2020. It'll be when the last episodes that comes out in 2020, right at Christmas time. And we're, we're filming, we're filming, <laughs> we're recording it on Friday the 13th. Ooh, 11, 11, <laughs> Friday the 13th. <laughs> I'm going to say it's auspicious. My mom was born on Friday the 13th. And so I, I try to believe, you know, these like, like six, 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 for example, is actually like a really positive omen. If you understand mm. numerology and feminine essence. Well, th- 13, it's a 13 day, which is the day of the feminine uh, and it's Freya day, Friday, the day of Freya, which is the day of the feminine. So of course it's been demonized and seen as bad luck <laughs> because anything to do with women has been seen as bad luck. Sinful. Mm. Yeah. And we're right before a, a new moon. Yeah. And so, you know, we're ending a year of letting go and grief and it has been really important to me this year to find people who are older than me, who have more life experience than me, who've experienced cycles that I've not yet crossed that threshold. And after listening to your podcast about your father's death and how it seemed like you were a doula for his death experience and also doula yourself through an experience with that. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about death and that cycle, but also it seems like you've done it with so much beauty and grace. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious before we full on dive into that, how, how you would describe your, your process to getting where you're at in life right now. So like what you do, the way that you do it, the family you have in like, in a nutshell, if you could even do that. <laughs> well, actually I can <laughs> for a minute. I was like, well, I don't know if I can answer that, but I actually think I can, which is that um, for me, there is, as far as I can see it, there's a harmonious way of relating with all things that is possible. And for the most part, we're just not there yet. And so when I think of it from an ecological perspective, when I think of life from an ecological perspective, there's a reason why we have all of the creatures that we have. Every creature plays a particular role. And if you take one creature out of the ecosystem, it starts to collapse the ecosystem around it, which creates more collapse. And, and, you know, at the same time, our ecology can regenerate and can thrive and we can find ways to, to, um, make up for those, those little collapses that happen here and there. So the whole thing doesn't just fall apart because we lose, you know, uh, one colony of ants. But if we lost all the ants or we lost all the bees, we'd be in deep shit. Can I say that? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you can say that. Shit. So there's a relationship between all things that if we can learn how to and lean into what right relationship is, then we can find the way, the regenerative and more beautiful way forward. So that's sort of how I try to do everything. It's like, if I'm thinking about working with clients, okay, what does right relationship look like? How do we be in right relationship? How do we nurture this relationship? 
where is there a hierarchical dynamic at play that actually doesn't really serve what we're up to here and serve the more beautiful world that we're here in service of? And so how do we have to break down that hierarchical dynamic and come into something more um, mutually nourishing? So that I feel like kind of looking at what is right relationship here is, I would say, the core tenet of my life and how I strive to work and be and of course, it's hardest for me in romantic partnership with my partner. <laughs> As it usually is. So if he, was, if he was in this room right now, he'd probably be looking at me with like a smirk and a raised eyebrow, like, okay, keep working at it. <laughs> it's a nice so ideal the, you have. <laughs> it's an ideal, you know, and it's, and it's, and it takes work. It takes yeah. work because we are, as humans, we're trained in dominance and submission. We're trained in extraction. And so, you know, I don't remember where I first heard this. I think it was actually at the zoo, the San Francisco Zoo. I was out with my mother and my kid, just like cringing the whole way. But my child was in bliss to be seeing all these animals. Mm-hmm. But we learned that anteaters will not, if they are hungry and they come along a colony of ants, they will not eat all of them. They will leave some of them because they innately understand that the colony needs to regenerate. And, you know, humans are the only species on the planet right now that doesn't live regeneratively. I learned that at a dinner party with Tom Chi, who's the creator of Google Glass. And that's something he said. So I'm assigning some authority and trusting that that's true. (laughs) But it also makes sense because, you know, we... um, that, it's just, it's what we've been trained into, dominance and mm-hmm. submission, hierarchy, and extraction. And it's how mm-hmm. we tend to come to a lot of things. So, trying to do I, it. I got chills when you talked about the anteater. Mm-hmm. Because there just seems to be an innate wisdom that we are disconnected from. And... It seems so it the extraction is actually something that's really fascinating to me right now, healing personally from years of childhood narcissistic abuse and then church abuse and and then getting into self-help and being like, oh, it's same, 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 same. It's all the same. I'm a part of this dynamic. Interesting. Um, what is my role? Um, I'm curious how you how you define right relationship, because you, you mentioned it's hardest in your romantic relationship, but also you are in a role of leadership. And so I'm curious how you define that in the realm of your leadership with client work, because it's often a place where people automatically create hierarchy, even before you interact with anyone. Mm -hmm. Well, so to me, right relationship is healthy and it's mutually uplifting. So with clients, for example, I understand that what tends to happen automatically if we don't make any effort for it to be different is a hierarchical sort of teacher-student dynamic where, you know, I'll just speak for the coaching industry, which I'm a part of. There's like, it tends to be this, like, the coach is the rock star, the guru, the all-seeing, the all-knowing, the the wise one, and the client becomes like, the lowly student who you know, <laughs> came to sit at the feet of this wise one and learn from them. And like that, I think is sort of a setup. And 
it's, I say set up because it's actually kind of set up that way. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. there's a reason why the glamour photography and, you know, the, the peacocking, the fancy shit that we buy and the, you know, look how much money I made. And, you know, some of that, I understand all of that. I've had all the glamorous photos. I love them, <laughs> but I think mm-hmm. it's something that we just have to be mindful of with all of those things, which is that they can create this, um, like deification where the, the, the coach becomes this, you know, this sort of infallible, perfect, aspirational being. And I think on a level that can be life-giving and healthy, you know, I've had teachers in my life that I'm like, yeah, when I'm your age, I would like to be living as you live, or I would like to be, have the depth of wisdom that you hold and, uh, or I would like to have a, a business or do my work in a way that you do. But also when it's like, I have, if I'm collapsing my sovereignty and sense of wholeness to do that, that's not right relationship. That's where there's like a, we're now not operating in a super healthy way. So, mm. um, I think one of the ways that I do it with my clients is I'm just real, like who I am when, I'm with my clients is who I am when I'm with my friends. It's not, I don't have like a compartmentalized me. I'm also really clear though about what my role is. My role is to create the space, to hold the space and to guide in the space. So even though I'm open, I'm vulnerable, I'm me, I'm also not like hold me or I, I don't know, figure it out, you know, when, if the space is falling apart or there's chaos, I'm not running in the other direction, um, which is probably why there's not chaos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, if conflict happens, that can happen. You know, if, if misunderstanding or, or upset happens, that can happen. You know, I'm, I know that that's my responsibility to step in and to be there and to hold that space. So I think it's A, knowing what my role is and being really clear on that and be looking for and ferreting out any experience of hierarchy where mm-hmm. I am regarding myself or others are regarding me as above them because I'm holding the space for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just looking at where am I not being real and being more real, opening in that place. I I love your definition of that. Right relationship and regeneration are two of my core values. And, you know, I got into co- this coaching industry at 23. And so I've learned, I've made a lot of mistakes <laughs> as anyone who probably gets into the industry has. And your leadership has been one that I've looked to as a model for what sovereign leadership looks like. And that's a really big theme of the podcast and of the work that I and moving into more and more. And what really struck me is the way that you actually navigated your father's death, sharing tidbits of it publicly while still operating from what I perceived operating your business and still leading. And you did so with a lot of vulnerability and were very clear that you were in grief as one would be when their father is dying. And at the same time, there was a sense of sovereignty and a sense of being in your own container that I found really beautiful. And so, you know, I followed on social media and then you recorded a podcast episode about it. And 
I would, I would love to talk about um, that experience, not just from a place of leadership, but just your experience with grief, with death and what it, it taught you. And in particular, you know, a lot of people that I work with and, you know, because obviously myself included, I speak about this a lot is my relationship with my parents has been one of struggle. Mm-hmm. And um, like you, my parents divorced at a young age and the back and forth and all of the things that go with what they call a split home, I guess. Um, and I've thought a lot about what it would be like to for my father to die before we were in a relationship that I really wanted to be in. And I, I kind of think that that's how it's going to go. You know, my, my prediction is things, he probably won't have a full turnaround of self <laughs> in the next however many years he has left. And so hearing you talk about the redemption and also the grief. So I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned on your podcast that you walked on eggshells around him mm-hmm. and that that didn't allow you to have a right relationship as you would want in that dynamic. Could you share a little bit more well, in anything about your experience of, of that relationship and what it was like to transition into holding space for his death? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a real trip. Um, so first of all, my mom and dad separated when I was three years old, um, which is an interesting, it's a really interesting time for a child to go through such a big life-changing transition when you don't yet have a concept of time and you don't yet have a concept of anything existing outside of your reality, really, you know, it's like grandma exists when I'm in front of, when she's in front of me, but when she's not in front of me, (laughs) you know, it's like when you see, when you're a little kid and you see like your teacher at the grocery store and you're like, why are you here? (laughs) You're not supposed to be anywhere but the classroom. (laughs) So so it was it was really difficult for me and made i'm sure you know however many compounding times more difficult by the fact that it was an extremely contentious separation so my parents battled it out in court and battled it out physically and it was traumatic um and then after that through the courts, what ended up happening is I lived one week with my mom, one week with my dad. And I did that back and forth until I was 16. And my dad, my dad was an alcoholic when he died. Um, From my lens, he never claimed that. uh, I don't know what to call it. He never claimed that for himself. So I'm not sure if I can claim it for him. But he had, let's say, all the markers of alcoholism, and I'm quite certain that he drank every single day, so, uh, and a lot. Um, and, you know, when I was a kid, he was fun- high-functioning and went to work and, you know, but he was enraged often. And so my experience of being around my dad was sort of 80% maybe 70% rage, you know, just absolute, be careful, get out of the war path, you know. And if you're the target of that, then, you know, God have mercy on you. Uh, And then maybe 20% just completely flat, unemotional, disconnected. Uh, I don't know if we can say unemotional. 
it was just not showing on the surface. So sort of flat and disengaged, pretty disconnected. And I couldn't, you know, I remember as a kid sort of studying him, like, is he angry? Is he sad? Like, what, what's happening and what's going to come next? I was trying to suss out what was going on in that, in the silence and the repression so that I could kind of try to navigate what was, if there was going to be an explosion or if I needed to take care of him or <clears throat> whatever. And so there was a lot of walking on eggshells, as you said. And then there was some degree of joy. So every once in a while, my dad was super playful and really funny and really fun. And, you know, the dad that was like, you want those shoes? Get those shoes. Let's get, you want some ice cream? Let's get some ice cream. You know, just like fun, playful, trickster, joker dad. Um, but that was so rare and obviously so sweet when I got that. So our relationship was just tough. It was tough. And I was there alone with him for half of my life and um, half of my home life anyways. And when I was 16 and I wrote him a letter actually and gave him a letter and said, I'm going to go. My letter basically said, I'm going to live with my mom full time. It's totally not your fault. You didn't do anything ever, which is like a total lie, but (laughs) it's totally not your fault. You didn't ever do anything. It's just going to be better for me for school. I want to be, you know, pretending that I like cared about being better in academics or something like that. Uh, (laughs) But really it was just, I'm old enough and I can make this choice and damn it, I'm making it kind of thing. Um, And our relationship really sort of flatlined after that. You know, we went for years where I would call him on Father's Day. He would call me on my birthday. We would see each other at Christmas because somebody in the family organized something and we would both be there. You know, there wasn't a lot of effort on either of our parts to have a real relationship. And I started making more efforts in my early, mid-20s to sort of weave that relationship back together. But I was still making that effort from the place of like, let's bury the hatchet kind of thing. Like, we're just going to start getting along and hanging out and doing things. But I was still tiptoeing around him all the time. Um, fast forward, you know, a decade or two, a decade and a half or so. And we still had this relationship. At that point, I had lived in the States for 15 years. And um, I'm from Canada. So I'd lived away from, you know, from my family for many years. And, you know, we still had a relationship where we would call every once in a while. You know, we'd see each other when we saw each other. But that was it. I was a mom and busy as a mom. And just sort of wondering how the story was going to end. I remember at times I would be like, I wonder what's going to happen. Like, is he going to die in his house? And nobody will know for, for days because he's such a recluse. I don't know that he's talking. I don't know that he has anybody that he talks to regularly. Um, and, you know, what happened was um, my cousin ended up discovering sort of the conditions that my dad was living in and, and the condition of him, you know, his health, his drinking and all of that. And, he discovered it, and that was sort of the be- – it wasn't the beginning, but it was the beginning of our awareness of the fact that he was in a steep decline. And 
pretty shortly after that, when my son was, I think he was one, maybe he was two, it just turned two or was about around about to turn two. I became power of attorney for my father because he was in the hospital and um, just mentally not there fully, you know, um, but my dad is a really, he was a really smart person. So <laughs> he would like, he'd say something that was so convincing, but then, you know, every five sentences you'd be like, oh wait, no, that's, that's not a thing. So he's like, <laughs> they're doing, you know, the local news station is doing a series on visible minorities in the hospital system. And they're coming to interview me because my dad is South Indian. He's Tamil, dark skin, Indian man. And which sounds totally reasonable. And he's like, they're going to expose some of the injustices that are happening here. And I was like, okay, good. And he's like, (laughs) stealing my stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like I'm taking this seriously because I understand he's a, he's a, he's a dark skinned brown man, you know, in this hospital system. He is saying that people are stealing from him. But then he also said that like a giant rat the size of a human ate his food. And I'm going like, okay, I, you know, (laughs) navigating this like slippery sense of reality with him. And that Mm. was really challenging because I wanted, you know, he's a grown adult. He gets to have sovereignty. Like, who am I to say, put him on lockdown? Because that feels safer for me to not have to deal with thinking that he might get on a bus and go somewhere. Um, I think those few years that they gave him two months to live and then he lived, you know, almost two years. Those few years were so challenging navigating, having power of attorney over another adult where I'm essentially making decisions that I think are in his best interest, but are also woven in with my own trauma with him, with my own fear of him, with, you know, and also being like, why shouldn't he decide for himself? Because there were times that he did seem really stable and clear. And then I would be making a decision that he didn't want. Um, You know, now I control his bank accounts and get to say whether or not he buys an iPad. You know, the the third iPad (laughs) of of three months because the last two he thinks were stolen, but really they're just in his closet and, you know, the whole thing. So it it was really, I have to say that was just such a challenging Mm -hmm. thing. And I don't know that I ever really fully figured it out because I could always see that there were layers of my own fear and my own, my own inner girl being like, just keep him there. Then we won't have to deal with what happens if he goes back home. And it's just scary and hard. Mm. Um, But ultimately, you know, it was really then this opportunity if you could call it that, it was through a particular lens to be with him in his, through his passing, you know, it, it's start, you know, at some point it became clear that we were in the final days or weeks and I ended up going there. And as you shared, I was there while he passed. I was there with him for four days, three or four days, the last few days of his life, pretty much nonstop, just me and him. Hmm. I'm going to link the the link to that episode in the show notes. So everyone who is curious about what being there with him for his last breath and all of that, that whole experience, they can really sink into that because it, it had me in tears 
multiple Mm -hmm. times at the, like you said, like holding him and yourself and your younger self and your child and your family, like all of these different components. And then also it it kind of sounds like, you know, you're raising a child and then also your father is in some ways becoming a child and (laughs) navigating like with it. I'm just imagining like a little person, they're living in their own reality and they're insistent that this is the way that it is and honoring that they're a sovereign being and also safety and also what reality is that who I am curious through that process, you spoke to a little bit, the redemption that was made possible and the layers of seeing his essence. Mm-hmm. And that really fascinated me the way that you worked through some of your own stuff around your childhood to where you really saw him. I'm curious. Oh, yeah. Say more. Yeah. It, it, you know, there's something, I have attended two births, three if I count my own, and one death now. So I've been there through the the journey of a new little being coming into life and a being leaving this, this life. And something that I have learned in that very limited experience that I wish we all had experienced by the time we were like four years old or something, you know, because I think the world would look very different if we had a a different relationship with birth and death. Um, But something that I, that I've come to see just through that limited, you know, the naivete actually of that limited experience, um, but through the experience nonetheless is like, there's a, there's a, when we really trust the field, and this is something that I've learned through my work as well. So like, I think that 90% of my work is trusting the field, you know, and tending the field. It's like tracking the energy, feeling the, the, the flow of energy in the space, you know, trusting. It's when I say the field, essentially what I mean is life. It's like a surrender into a deeper trust of life that has it feel like I don't have to control everything, but also I get to be fully here. Because if I'm trusting life, then, then why would I not be fully here and fully present? But also mm-hmm. if I'm trusting life, then I don't have to control the shit out of everything. <laughs> so there's something about that trusting life, you know, trusting the, 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 the field or trusting life that I think really opens up our intuition and our awareness and brings us into really deep relationship. And that was something that happened in those last few days of my father's death, you know, and, and it's stages, you know. So I got there on the first day and the first full day that I spent with him, seeing very clearly there's, there's no coming back from this. You know, um, if anybody's watched somebody die in a way where it's, you know, maybe not slow, but you watch it progress over, over many days or weeks or years, you know, you see that, that point where you realize, yeah, there's probably no way to come back from this, or there's no way to come back from this. There's a, you know, the shrinking of the body that happens and all of that. And, so the first day, it was just my tussle, you know, my tussle with this reality. And all I had was like memories of all of these things that I was angry with him for, that things that he did. I had memories that I don't even know if they were memories or just like constructed thoughts about things that he 
you know, did or moments of time. And I was just mad. I was so angry. You know, that whole day I was like angry. I was angry at him for dying. I was angry at him for, you know, for, for not having, you know, self-control that, that the, I was angry that my child wasn't going to know him or grow up with him. And I was angry at him for that. And I was angry at him for all the things that had happened in my childhood and through my life and just angry, 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 angry. And it was such a beautiful opportunity because I, I'm so uh, well-versed in what I call the compassionate bypass. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think it was until I was pregnant that I really felt what rage felt like. People would talk about anger and rage and I'd be like, that's so interesting. Like, (laughs) what is that feel like? Because I don't really, if I'm angry, it like lasts for a second and then I get really sad, you know, or, and what would happen for me is I would feel angry and then I'd be like, yeah, but I can see why. Like I would feel compassion for the person on the other side. And that was a survival tactic as a small child um, because I had no outlet to express my anger. So I had to figure out what to do with it. And what I figured out to do is to just make it go away, like push it down and replace it with something. And so I would do this compassionate bypass. So it was so great for me to have a day where I was just like so pissed at him. And, you know, and that was part of my dance with his death. That was part of our dance with his death. And then the second day, it was like all of these sweet memories, just like, like little flashes. And I wasn't, again, I wasn't sort of sitting there thinking actively about it. I would just get these little flashes of like, you know, little tricks he would play on me and my cousin and, you know, the way that he looked when he was kind of awkwardly holding my son Raven when he was little and like just these little glimmers, like his smile, you know, Um, and all these little glimmers and memories and both days I just wept. I wept and wept and wept. I wept rageful, angry tears the first day. I wept, you know, these sweet, sorrowful tears on the second day. And then on the third day of his life, third, the last full day of his life, I should say, but my third day in his death dance with him, it was all just experiencing his essence. It was like, I could just feel this like sweet little boy in him. And it was like I was seeing images. And again, who knows if these were sort of like cosmic memories or what, but just like little images of him in South Africa, like going to the to the store and buying butter and like sticking his finger in the butter, which he wasn't supposed to do and would get in big trouble for, but couldn't help himself. (laughs) And just like him, like jumping off of rocks when he was five years old and, you know, whatever, whatever it was, obviously things that I wasn't around to experience, but just experiencing my dad through these like little visions, little pictures of his life and, um, and really feeling his essence and, and I would say that that whole journey, and in the next day, I will say, was the day that he passed. And it was incredibly beautiful, you know, like, gosh, if if I get to die, I, I don't want to die in the same manner that he did, like from the same causes. But if I could die with my family around me in that way, and with that kind of love and deep presence, and wow, I mean, it was really beautiful. 
from my lens. But that journey for me personally of just me surrendering into death, you know, into the field of death and into the reality of his death and fully allowing for whatever was present for me and the grief, the waves of like anger and sweetness and sorrow and ultimately that like real allowance and just being there with him. And by the way, when I say like deep presence, I was like watching shows on my phone and I was talking on the phone with people and like eating potato chips. And, you know, I'm not saying I was like holding a rosary on my knees for 36 hours or however long, 72 hours by his bedside. And when I say deep presence, I just mean I was there. And I was sort of riding those waves. I was like, okay, I don't know. I wasn't trying to make him die faster or slower, right? Because I was just like, okay, I'm in this, I'm trusting life here. I'm, I'm going with it. And it just felt like this very intuitive dance that by the end, you know, I knew how to swab his lips in a particular way. And, um, I kind of knew when he needed help, you know, and when he seemed okay, you know, there was just a deeper way of relating to his, his body, his form, his, his life or what life was in him. But also I was having this deeper relationship happening with him on what I would call like a, a spiritual realm in the spiritual realms and coming to that place of fully allowing the grief and going through the waves and then, and then arriving at this, like really relating to him on this essence level. It's shifted so much in my relationship with him, you know, that now I feel, I just feel a deep relationship with my dad. And, you know, I I think if I hadn't been, it's possible that if I hadn't been with him through that journey in some way, or at least navigated my own grief deeply. Um, It's possible that when I thought of him, I would still feel tremendous resentment and unresolved feelings, you know? Um, And it's not to say that I don't ever have those moments where I'm like, that that was so shitty or, why did you have to do that? But I also have this, like, I feel like I relate to him as a whole being and not just as my dad who made his mistakes. So much of what you said from the compassionate bypass, super relate to the compassionate bypass, um, to experiencing rage. And then, because what I've been noticing, and I'm going to take it broader because I think we're collectively going through something that what you shared has a lot of wisdom for us in is, I'm seeing a lot of people want to get to love and unity and essence right now of like, just why can't we just come together and understand that, you know, we're all the same thing. And it's like, yes. And there's developmental stages that we have to go through to get there. So it's not that that's false. It's not that we don't need to have love and light and unity. It's that, um, there's an actual process, like a baby can't run <laughs> before they crawl and walk and learn to lift up their head. And all of these things happen in this order that when they happen in a different order, there's always a adaptive strategy to help them get there. Mm. And I'm seeing that in 2020 with this 
collective grief and a number of different things collapsing for us from actual death with people and COVID to government systems and our, our trust in the media and what's happening with uprisings with Black Lives Matter. And everyone's different opinions of how it should be. It's like just grief and anger and then bypass. And I'm seeing all of these human responses. And I'm curious, you're um, having been so intimately seeing someone that you love, that you were also in a difficult relationship with, die, what your experience of 2020 has been going through 2020 right after the death of your father. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, I, I had some things happen in pretty close succession. So I had, you know, my cousin had her baby and I was there for the birth. And, um, and my role in that space felt very much like um, holding the faith and steadying the field, like holding the faith, which to me is steadying the field. By the way, I'll just share this really amazing thing, which is I'm trained in a modality called family constellations. And as a facilitator for family constellations, the, the most important thing from my understanding and my experience is that the facilitator, a big part of our role is to ground the field. If the field isn't ground, you'll see, and family constellation kind of, I'll just say for anybody who doesn't know what that is, it, it looks like a bunch of people that are acting, but they're not acting. So I, I won't go too far into that, but that's kind of what it looks like. It looks like a, like a bunch of people that are standing in a space together and they're acting something out. Um, but to be clear, they are not acting. Um, it's, it. If the field isn't steady, what you'll see is like a bunch of people running amok <laughs> and not a lot of progress, really slow progress. Like it's a slog. There's, you know, it's sort of like um, if as a parent I'm checked out or I'm frazzled, freaking out, like what happens is it's chaos. My house will become chaos. My kid will get chaotic. Things get, you know, it, it just, be, it's a mess. If I'm steadier, there's more of a chance at least for there to be some steadiness in the space. So anyways, what happened in quick succession was my cousin had her baby. I was there. Big part of my role was, I feel, studying the field and therefore studying the energy so that she was sort of like surrendering more deeply. And then my father died. And then I was there for the birth of my dear friend, Becca Piastrelli's baby. Um, and we actually talked about that on her podcast, which is called Belonging. So for me, it has been, the, the 2020 has been like the ultimate surrender experiment. Like, this isn't what anyone asked for, anyone that I know anyways, but it's here. Um, I don't love it when people say like, this is the best thing that could have happened. A lot of people said that a lot of people who didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016 then said, this is the best thing that could have happened because here's why. And I get where they're coming from with it. And it's not like I totally disagree with their come from with it. But I think that when we say this is the best thing that could have happened, what we lose is like, yeah, go tell someone who lost a beloved to COVID that this is the best thing that could have happened. It's so insensitive. 
And that's a nice word. You know, it's like unconsciously cruel on another level. I think like it's not the best thing that could have happened. It's just happened. And now we get to make the best of it. And that is the role that we get to play. Like that's part of our sovereign role. It's like sometimes shit just happens, but how do we make the best of it? And that's a question that I'm always asking in my work. That's a question that I've asked in my father's death, in my cousin and my friend's births. Like how do we proceed from this moment? This is what we have is this moment. So how do we proceed? What is the next right step? And um, so I think that part of what my father's death and, and those two birth experiences have shaped more deeply in me is a willingness to surrender, to trust life. Again, not to say this is the best thing that could have happened, but okay, here we are. This is happening. And so instead of me trying to cling to and recreate you know, what, stay on course, keep the plans, (laughs) don't change anything. It's like, okay, well, I'm, we're being asked to adapt. I'm being asked to adapt in my life, which means I'm being asked to adapt my business, everything. We're all being asked to adapt. So how are we going to adapt? Like, what do we choose? And I think that the the piece that has felt the most supportive of that adaptation and adapting in generative ways has been, for me anyways, trusting life and going, okay, trusting life again doesn't mean good things are always going to happen. That's not how, that's not life. That's not, <laughs> that has not been the experience of life ever <laughs> for any part of recorded history that only good things would happen, but that things happen. That's all that things happen and life keeps going. That's the only promise. We don't get to promise that we stay alive forever. We just get to promise that like things are going to happen. Eventually we're going to die and things are going to happen along the way. And the agency we have is like how we be in it. And even that probably doesn't feel like full agency all the time, which is totally understandable, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think for me, it's been like that dance of, trusting life, which is not, you know, putting sprinkles and rainbows and shooting, you know, unicorn rainbows out of it. And like, this is perfect. It's amazing. This is all great. But like, wow, this sucks for a lot of people. This is rough. This is lonely. This is stressful. Some people think this is amazing. This is what it is for each person. And it's unique and different for each person. And it is, we know that it is, this is the state of things. Whatever is, is. And so now how do we be in it? That's where we get the choice. How do I choose to be in it? Um, yeah. And again, I think that the, the most um, generative choices of how to be come from actually a deeper surrender, a deeper being with what is. And I've seen that in birth and I've seen that in death and I've seen that with people's creativity through this time. I've seen that with people, you know, grieving in newer and deeper um, and more life filled ways in this time that something about facing what is 
being with what is and then saying, okay, how do I choose to be in the face of this? That's our sovereignty in action. And we don't have to bypass to do it. Yeah. That feels really compassionate to me and like a relief because what you said earlier about control, um, I'm realizing, you know, in a, a newer relationship, how, just how controlling I really am. I'm like, oh my God, I'm really seeing myself right now. Oh my <laughs> so God. So I get it. I, me too. <laughs> and letting myself, you know, I was reading Self-Remembering by Red Hawk this morning and I love, I love Red Hawk's book, Self-Remembering and Self-Observation. And he quotes Osho. And I don't remember the quote. I'm not even going to pretend to remember. But it was something about how just observing is the change. Just observing what is and fully accepting what is is how the change is brought across. And how I used to believe that was resigning. Like resigning to what is. So I felt like I needed to control and manage. And this year that is literally impossible to actually do. Like I'm realizing how impossible it is to ever feel peace, to ever feel act, true sovereignty from the place of trying to control. Mm-hmm. And that was a complete misunderstanding of power, mm-hmm. probably based on conditioning. Well, I think, there, I think the word acceptance gets put in there, like accept what is. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the challenging thing, you know, is that the word acceptance um, – gets conflated with a lot of things. So, you know, I think for many folks, for many of us, when we hear acceptance, we hear like um, approval, um, allowance, instead of what I think is really implied or meant by acceptance often when it's spoken, which is just being with, is just fully being with what is. And I don't have to like it, I, I, I might absolutely hate it. <laughs> um, I don't have to agree with it, but it's, it is. So now what? So, you know, with the election of Donald Trump, for me, that was not a happy day. Um, <laughs> it was, I went to the, I went to Hillary Clinton's, uh, election celebration party, which turned into Donald Trump's <laughs> election celebration party that I was not at because I was at a different party, <laughs> uh, eight months pregnant. And so, and it was like, I, I, again, to your point, I think there's this idea that acceptance is, re, re, um, what's the word? Resignation. And instead it's like, well, this is what is. So now what? Mm-hmm. We can't pretend it's not what is. We don't need to paint it, you know, in sparkles and say, this is the best thing that could have happened. Um, or, oh, well, like, too bad. We'll put our heads in the sand and see what happens in four years. Um, but just being with it, what is, I think there's so much more information available, so much more creativity, so much more intuition, so much more relational ways possibilities from just Mm -hmm. being with that's it just being with it this it brings up for me this observation in the self-help industry which you and I are both a part of um for better for worse right now for me that's kind of how it feels of like I want to do this work and also I'm seeing so many things I'm like 
oh my God, I didn't see this before. Um, or I did, but I didn't realize the depth of what I feel could be destruction from it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, we're seeing this collective reckoning and I'm wondering what you're seeing in the, the self-help industry as far as what, what there could be a deeper opportunity to like deepen into through this. Because for me, it feels like we're in a reckoning. And I guess I'm also curious if you feel that. Yeah, I think that what we're seeing in the industry is just what we're seeing in the world, which is either clinging harder to the status quo and, um, you know, digging our heels into our positioning regardless, without any willingness to really interrogate it, question it. Um, And so I see some of that, you know, a little bit more like, well, this is how we do things. This has always worked. We're going to keep doing them. Screw everybody else. And, um, And I also see that like anything, there, there's adapt or wither, adapt or suffer, you know? And so I think the big opportunity is to move with more depth, is to get a hell of a lot more humble. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if, if it's going to, you know, change how licensing and certification and regulatory stuff happens. Like I just not a predictor of those kind of trends, but what I do think is that, you know, like we're seeing in the world polarization, I think we might just see more polarization sadly. Um, But also it might help people choose more (laughs) and see more clearly what they're signing up for and what they're getting into. And, um, you know, what I find is that that sharp, my way or the highway, I'm right, and everyone else that doesn't agree with me has to go, um, it feels shitty. Like, I don't know if you've noticed that, but, like, it just feels so crappy in your body to be like, I'm right, everyone else has to, has to go away and die and, you know, banish, banish the wrong ones and we're the right ones. There's something about that that I just, it might feel like sugar high empowering for a moment, but on a deeper level, it's like unsettling. Um, and so I think that because I'm hoping because humans tend to be like reward-based, <laughs> reward and punishment-based, and that when things feel bad for long enough, we, if there's a way for them to feel good, we start leaning towards that thing. I'm hoping that there will be a deeper embrace of depth, of being more omni-considerate um, and more integrous, you know, deeper integrity. And we'll see. But I think that a lot of people are feeling like, oh, that feels like the way. Not bypassing, which might feel good for a minute, but there's something underneath it that feels like, ooh. Um, and at the same time, not, it's a, the, 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 for me, bypassing is kind of like when you're really sick, but you take a day quill. And you're like, I'm fine. But really, you're like, I feel like garbage. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> I was like, I'm fine, but you're not fine. And everybody looking at you sweating and pale can tell that you're not really <laughs> yeah. fine. You know, so that's one way. And, um, and then the other way is to, you know, to me, the like deep, righteous, like we're doing, we're going to keep doing business as usual. Like we don't care what movements are happening or how the social climate is changing. Like we're not changing our messaging. This is how we do it. We're right. You know, that kind of thing to me is like just showing up sick and you didn't even bother taking the day quill. Like it just starts Which in 2020 is a hard no, right? Like in 2020, don't show up sick go to bed and think about yourself for a little while. Just think about what you're doing. Take a beat. So I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, there's, there's something underneath that, that it might feel good to power through and show up anyway and whatever business as usual status quo, but underneath it, there's some like, Oh, this doesn't feel something about this doesn't feel right. And it might feel okay for a minute to like pop the day quill. And this is not a day quill ad, by the way, or anti-ad, but <laughs> it might feel good for a minute to like. We'll link day quill in the show notes for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I am not plugging that stuff. <laughs> but it might feel good for a minute. And then, but underneath it, you're like, this is something, something's not right. And um so I'm hoping that what we see more of, and I'm, I'm seeing more of it, is folks going, wait a minute, can we just slow down here and mm-hmm. see what's what? And this is where I think the fertile ground is. Like there's so, I trust the creativity of the human spirit so much. I mean, like I have pens in four colors in front of me right now. Humans made those they're so cool. Like we're just so creative. (laughs) I don't know why I chose pens as my example, but like if we can blow things up from like miles and miles away, we can figure out how to regenerate. You know, we can figure out how to be good with one another. I believe in the creativity of humans and the human spirit. And so, you know, I, I, what I'm hoping for and what I am seeing more of is people slowing down and going into the space of I don't know. And the deeper spaces of inquiry and the deeper spaces of exploration and the deeper spaces of learning. And I think what can be created from that space is so beautiful and so mm-hmm. much richer and so much more regenerative and life-giving and nourishing than what gets created when we you know, stay with the gear jammed in fifth with the status quo or when we just kind of bypass and pedal to the metal um, at all costs. So that's what I'm hoping for. Yes. We are at time for rapid fire, and there are so many things I wanted to talk about today that we did not get to. And I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm just like, okay, I know I mentioned I'm not a three-hour podcast person before we hit record, but I take it back. Um, but, you know, just to tie up what we've what we've shared is there anything about what we've talked about that you want to loop back to and close before we do any rapid fire Mm. I think the one thing is that um humans we we need community we are we are not lone wolves we are pack animals we are creatures of community and it's easy for me to sit here and throw around words like surrender and 
trusting life. And I don't mean those to sound like bumper stickers or like flowery affirmations. It's work and it takes safety. It takes a felt experience of safety to do that, safety within ourselves. And I don't know anyone that has managed to cultivate that deep safety within themselves without also having safety around them in community, Mm -hmm. you know, and when I say that, I mean deep safety. So it's, I I just want to say, like, because I didn't say it, that building for each of us, and especially for anyone listening who's like, I don't have that, or I want that more, building, and it's work, um, but it's beautiful work, like tending a garden, um, building community around us with other people who are in the practice of right relationship, who are in exploration around how we as humans are trained to be extractive and dominant and suppressive, um, people who are in the conversation around what a more beautiful world could be and what part we get to play and want to play in that, building community with other people who, um, <clears throat> you know, who, who we would want to go through the apocalypse with, really, <laughs> you know, who, who we would want to huddle with. Um, and building that now is so crucial, I think, for both the experience of like feeling safe in our bodies, feeling safe in our explorations, um, feeling safe being more our, of ourselves in the world and bringing our gifts forward and doing our work in the world. Um, and it's just what we need. So I think that's like the last thing I would want to loop is like, we all need that. And it's not that I'm, you know, we're always going to be in the room with people who are those people, but knowing that we have them is profound. Mm-hmm. This has been the biggest learning of the last two years for me. I was doing so many things alone and just reading my journals from two years ago, actually the other day. And it was like, where's my safe place? Where's my community like longing? And then learning to feel safe within the community that you create is like a whole nother task. Right. Right. <laughs> it's like, right. oh, I can, I can lean into this. I can fall into this. I can trust this. I can be vulnerable. Like, oh my God. Um, yeah. And I find yeah. a lot of times people are like, I'm going to need all new friends for this. And I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not in anyone else's life to say whether that's true or not. And I think sometimes that's a way of us not leaning in and doing the work because sometimes yeah. the work is gathering those friends that we've been with through, from high school and going like, I actually just want to go deeper with you. I notice that I'm not always like real about what's happening in my life. And I want to be more real about what's happening in my life. And I want to really know what's happening in your life. Mm. And here's where I get scared of being real, you know, and, you know, can we promise each other that when we share that we don't talk about it with our partners or like that, I, that what I tell you really stays with us. And, you know, can I trust you? Can you trust, can you trust me? Can we do this thing? Like, it's so vulnerable. It's like putting a little, our little quivering hearts out and holding them out and being like, could you, will you still love me? I mean, it's so tender to create deep relationship and community. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of folks, it's not something that we've had in our families, you know, 
at least not as the rule. And so it can feel really foreign and make us want to run fast the other way. And yet it's the salve, you know, yeah. it's like the, the medicine that feels so bitter and terrifying to take, but it's the only thing that's really going to heal us on the deepest level. So yes, that, yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. Like whole nother episode just on that. Oh my yeah. gosh. Totally. <laughs> so good. Well, let's do some rapid fire before we wrap up. The first question is, what is your spiritual background? Uh, Started, I got my first level Reiki training when I was 14. And I was like talking to angels when I was 11 and had little angel cards and all of that. And, um, And also I'm Hindu. My father's family is Hindu. I was raised Hindu from my, my Aya, my grandmother, on my father's side. So I would say my, my spiritual background is a weaving of this, these sort of Hindu roots and being a little kid who was like listening to Louise Hay and Bernie Siegel tapes um, to try to. <laughs> How did you even find that? <laughs> my best friend's mom was, mm. they had, my best friend's father died when she was little. And so my best friend's mom had found her spiritual path through her grief and guided her girls and me as the, you know, resident best friend um, along with her. And so I got to experience all of these beautiful things and explore the mystical realms as, as, a, pre, as a tween, which was really powerful and I think set me up to, you know, find teachers, like real teachers along the way. That's so beautiful. I love knowing that like sometimes just one person in your childhood, just the the most random person, like the chances of that is so beautiful. The next question is how do you know when you know? Um, I see, I'm a seer. So I'll see the picture of it and my whole being lights up like a big yes. Mm. Mm. What identities have you had to let go of to own your fullness today? Good daughter, good daughter, um, a hardest worker. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the, I can do it all do gooder. Mm-hmm. Like give it to me, that identity, give it to me. <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. So earnest. Mm-hmm. Also, um, also like a straight, normal woman who wants a white picket fence life. Yeah. Normal, basically the identity of normal cis het woman. Yeah. And all the things that is. I'm cis, but I'm not heterosexual and I am not normal, <laughs> whatever normal is. <laughs> I'm not whatever I'm loving. Yeah, I've been loving our like co armpit hair grow out 2020, leg hair grow out 2020 situation. It's been so fun to see all the women who are like, oh, fuck this. (laughs) That just happened this year. So good. What are you most enjoying learning right now? Mm. Oh, that's a great one. Okay. Two things. One is weaving how to, I'm enjoying learning the weaving of deeper 
spiritual truths, you know, or humanitarian truths, even the, the spiritual truths, the weaving of deeper spiritual truths with the reality of what is the suffering that is um, the injustices that are. And that's just like a constant thing that I'm, how do we navigate this and not lose these deeper spiritual truths, but also not lose our connection to humanity and what's actually happening and what's actually needed. So that is just like a constant learning and exploration. Um, By the way, big plug for Semene Selassie's book, Mm. You Belong. Love that book. Um, And I'm also really enjoying learning what my kid is learning every day, like what words and what, you know, he, he, we were standing at the edge of the ocean the other day and he said, why does the water go back and forth? Is it physics? (laughs) Like so tickled (laughs) by that. (laughs) So I'm just like, I'm enjoying learning whatever we're learning together. Mm, So fun, Mm -hmm. which in a way is so spiritual. Children are, spiritual in that way. Yeah. Three more questions. What does grace mean to you? Um, not turning away, being, mm-hmm. being with, being with what is um, with an open heart mm-hmm. and not turning away from pain. Next question. What is your go-to coffee shop order? Uh, my go-to coffee shop order is, um, only if it's not a concentrate, but if it's a in-house made chai, uh, masala chai mm-hmm. with, um, oat milk. Yes. That's that sounds so good. Yeah. And finally, what do you want? Oh, I want all the children to have a world where people really know that they're loved and people really be loved, like act lovingly to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I also just want the entire, like all these broken systems to start reforming real fast so that you know, my kid doesn't have to learn active shooter drills at school and know that that could even be a thing, you know? So I I want reform. (laughs) I want, Mm -hmm. I want massive, rapid, all hands on deck, creative, life affirming reform. And, um, and I want, I want um, peace, like love in action. Yeah. Yeah. And what you said about grace, not looking away. It's like, there's work yeah, to do. I don't know who first said, stay with the trouble. It wasn't me, but that mm-hmm. my friend, Jen Lemon always says it, stay with the trouble, that thing, just stay with it. We're so creative. If we just trusted our creativity, you know, um, how much could be possible. Thank you for tuning in to everything belongs. If you loved this episode, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app so that others might find this podcast too. You can find the show notes and find out more about today's guests by going to madisonmorgan.com backslash podcast. And before you go, I want to tell you about Everything Belongs, the membership. 
For only $17 a month, join my monthly workshop gatherings that will serve as a playground and sacred circle to learn and explore a spirited life fully expressed in your worth, wholeness, and power. Members will have the opportunity to vote on podcast guests, pick workshop topics, send in questions to be answered live on the call, get a monthly journaling PDF, and members-only access to all of my coaching programs. If you're looking for a place to ground, gather, play, and explore all of the conversations shared here on Everything Belongs, then this is a space for you. For more information, go to madisonmorgan.com backslash membership. And if you're not following and chatting with me over on Instagram, please go do that now and DM me and let me know your favorite part of this episode. I cannot wait to hear from you. And until next time, remember that curiosity can be a portal to a rich life where everything truly belongs. See you next time.